Entrepreneurs are incredibly important to local communities, especially small communities. But starting a business is risky, even riskier if you don't have good resources to guide you and the ones you can find don't reflect your realities. Our guest this episode retired from politics and started an initiative that helps Indigenous people acquire the tools they need to pursue their dreams. Former Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honourable Paul Martin, joins us to talk about the Martin Family Initiative and its programs that support Indigenous youth. He shares how important collaboration with community and experts is in developing these programs. From an initial focus on entrepreneurship and business, they now have a set of initiatives that address literacy and the early years in the lives of Indigenous youth. He also talks about how the Martin Family Initiative works hand-in-hand with communities to stay rooted to the land and in Indigenous culture. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is the Right Honourable Paul Martin. Mr. Martin was the 21st Prime Minister of Canada, serving as Prime Minister from 2003 to 2006, following almost a decade as Minister of Finance from 93 to 2002. His track record as a deficit eliminator and debt reducer may be what he's remembered for in economic circles, but Mr. Martin's broader passions were clear through his various contributions as Prime Minister in areas such as reducing wait times in healthcare and establishing early learning and childcare programs. He reached a historic deal with Indigenous Peoples of Canada to eliminate funding gaps in health, education, and housing, known as the Kelowna Accord. This accord was seen by Indigenous groups as a step forward. Part of the reason was the way that national Indigenous organizations had been actively involved by Mr. Martin in the 18-month consultation process that led to the accord. The subsequent failure of successive governments to implement the accord added another chapter to our difficult history in the relationship between the government and Indigenous people in Canada. But Mr. Martin hasn't given up his passion to make a difference in the lives of Indigenous people. Since leaving politics, Mr. Martin has put his heart and mind into launching a new organization called the Martin Family Initiative, with the goal of working hand-in-hand with Indigenous peoples as they develop new approaches to the education and well-being of their children and youth. Mr. Martin, welcome to Bright Future. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Mr. Bassett. Mr. Martin, you founded international bodies. You put your stamp on our country in so many ways as prime minister, as finance minister. Your legacy is sound. And yet in recent years, you've launched this new Martin Family Initiative to try and improve the lives of Indigenous people in Canada. Why have you embarked on this initiative and why the focus on Indigenous people? This is not a new embarkation, as is witnessed from your introduction. When I was in government, it was obviously a priority for me. And it has been for many, many years. It really came to me. I was born, raised in Windsor, Ontario. I didn't know any Indigenous people. But when I was 17, I got a job on the tug barges in the Mackenzie River in the north. All of the people I worked with were young Indigenous people, Inuit or Métis or First Nation. And I formed a friendship and I formed an understanding, not as deep, as I would have hoped and occurred over the years. But nonetheless, I formed friendships. And I knew there was a certain melancholy. What would happen is we would gather around all of us and talk. As I have said in the past, those of you who know young men, our conversation wasn't necessarily the kind of conversation that anybody would want to listen to. But nonetheless, we got to know each other. That stayed with me all my life. This is not a new venture for me. The first programs you focused on developing entrepreneurship skills in Indigenous youth. You are a successful entrepreneur yourself. 
were you hoping to impart some of those lessons of your experience through that program? There's no doubt that entrepreneurship is very important to the indigenous people. And entrepreneurship is a very important part of the business program that we put forth, which in fact was our foundation's first program. However, I want to say that it was very much a business program of which entrepreneur was part. I'll tell you why. Most young people, unless their families happen to be in business, don't really know very much about business. And one of the reasons that there are high school business courses in every single province in the country, I believe, is so that young people can get an idea what business is all about as they're in the process of trying to determine what they want to become. But the fact is that none of those high school business courses mention Indigenous people, not the background that they live, not the culture, nothing at all. If you're a young Indigenous person, people next door to you may be learning a little bit about business, but you don't see any Indigenous business people. You don't see the problems that might come to your Northern community as an example. We decided that what has to happen if we're going to turn the economy around is we've got to essentially teach business from an Indigenous point of view, and that's only going to be a course. What we did was, first of all, do a pilot program, as we do in everything, and we simply took a standard business course, and we talked to a group of students going to a high school, which was a high school for flying reserves down the shores of Hudson's Bay. But it was just a regular business course. And at the end of it, I said, well, now, where do we go from here? And one student stood up and said, I think I'm speaking for everybody. This business course was situated in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. None of us live there. Essentially, all of the people who were in the course were white businessmen or women. But the fact is, we know there are indigenous businessmen and women. And I just read the message totally. What we did that year, we then took our teachers. We told them to take a year off. We got together with the indigenous business community and we developed a business court that essentially reflected indigenous culture, indigenous needs, and indigenous business. And we developed the textbooks and we developed the workbooks. And then we decided to introduce it into a high school in Winnipeg where there was a a very large indigenous population. And from there, the course took off. And we're now in about 45 schools across the country, 100% Indigenous classes, teaching business as it is lived by either the First Nations, the Métis Nation, or the Inuit. And that's why it's been a success. Statistics Canada surveys have repeatedly found that Indigenous people in Canada have some of the highest percentages of individuals who are interested in being an entrepreneur. Why, from your experience and from your program, do you think an entrepreneurial mindset is so prevalent or important in Indigenous youth in Canada? For the same reason that it's very important in the minds of an awful lot of young Canadians, and that is you're on your own. You don't report to anybody else if you started the business. It's your show, and that freedom that the innovation gives you is certainly part of it. But there's another reason as well. And that is that probably the majority of indigenous communities in Canada, you're not living near big factories. You're not living near tall buildings where there are banks 
or any of that. What you're doing is you're living in smaller communities and none of those companies that offer jobs the way they do in Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver are around. You've got to start the business. And as a result of that, you see the guy who started the gas station or the woman who started the hairdressing salon. You understand entrepreneurship from that point of view. But it's also, I think, the freedom that entrepreneurship gives you. Entrepreneurship is such an important part of career paths, but it also is one of the more challenging ones. As you said, you're free, but you're also on your own and you've got to be successful. And conference board research, we know that individuals looking to pursue entrepreneurship as a career, they often have to overcome in an Indigenous community some capacity and skills challenges. Challenges that our research has found are often linked to problems with our education system, a lack of support for Indigenous youth. Your program is addressing some of those. Entrepreneurship is a hard road. And there's always a number of challenges in getting people ready to become one. Since you've launched that first program, the Martin Family Initiative has added a number of additional programs in areas of literacy in early years. Can you talk a little bit about why you've expanded those offerings? The fact is that there, there really is only one program that we've introduced in order to directly address entrepreneurship within the Indigenous people. And I'll come to the others later. And that is, we set up the business course. It's been a huge success. Deals with financial literacy, deals with how you start up a business. It deals with business so that if you want to go work for General Motors, you can go work for General Motors and rise up. But one of the things that did occur as we were building this is we were approached by a number of chiefs on reserve who came to us and said, listen, we have kids who are dropping out of high school, or we have kids who want to start looking at the trades. If you could have not as quite a, a two-year business course, but if you could do something on a much shorter vein, where people who have dropped out of school could come and learn about how they can get into business and start a business course, we think that would be very helpful. And so we created what we call a 60-hour course. Then they asked us if we could produce a textbook for somebody who has left school but wants to get an introduction to business. And we did that as well. Now, that's the one thing that we added as a result because of the nature of what happens in, in certain reserves. The literacy course and the early years did not flow from the business course. Your comment is a very valid one. There's no doubt that the literacy course and the early years course will benefit those who want to go into business because it gives you a much better start. I'll just tell you how those two courses set up. We started at a high school level age, then we came down to primary school with literacy, and then with the early years, this is before anybody's gone to school. In the literacy course, average in Ontario of people who can read and write by the end of grade three, which is crucial. If you can't read and write by the end of grade three, what happens to you is they pass you into grade four and you can't read and write. You pass you into grade five, you can't read and write. And sooner along the line, somewhere you drop out of school. Ontario, a number of years ago, or 40 years ago, developed a huge program on literacy, how they could ensure that, in fact, the, the literacy program in Ontario 
made sure that by the end of grade three, you could read and write. It was a huge success, and it's been followed by many other jurisdictions. 70% of Ontarians can read and write by the end of grade three. The numbers, this is seven or eight years ago, before we started literacy course, in the reserve schools was 13% could read and write. So what we did is we went to the Ontario government and I said, can I have the course? We brought some experts from the outside, the former dean of the faculty of education at the University of Toronto as an example. We brought in the people who implemented the course in Ontario. And we went into two schools in Ontario on reserve schools as a pilot program. Everything we do is a pilot program to see if we can prove it. And we said, let's take this into these two reserve schools and see if this course can work. It was a five-year pilot project in both schools. At the end of the fifth year, remember the average was 13% could read versus 70. At the end of the five years, 81% of the students who were graduating could read and write. And in fact, the girls were reading and writing better than the girls who were going to the regular school. And I'll never forget that the chief, Kettle and Stony Point, the chief Tom Brissett, who's a big, strong man, stood up in front of the audience when he announced the 81%. Tears rolling down his face. He said to the audience, you thought that we couldn't do it, but we can do anything if you give us the tools to do the job. And that really is our underlying ambition, is to give the First Nations, the Métis Nation, and the Inuit the tools to do the job. The literacy course today is now in 18 schools and is being used as an example as to how other schools can improve literacy, which is so crucial. My colleague who runs our Indigenous research area, he characterized the differences learning to read and then reading to learn. And that becomes that real transition. And once you get enough literacy that you can start to read to learn, you can really elevate such a difference and such an important change. Your colleague is right. And one of the things that happened is as the literacy rates went up, the math rates went up. All of a sudden, these kids could read the math books. They could understand it's exactly what you say to learn. And so what they found is as the literacy rates went up, the attention to and the success in all the other areas in grades one to three also went up and had a real effect. The other issue is the early years. Would you like me to go into it? I'd love to. I know that this is something that you're personally very passionate about. And so I'd love to hear why this program and how you're approaching it. Probably the best way to start is that Cindy Blackstock, who was one of the leading Indigenous advocates, essentially said that so many Indigenous adults spend their whole lives compensating for a very tough childhood. And she's absolutely right. And the question is, how do you handle this? We met with a number of communities, and then we met with a number of experts in early childhood to figure out what there was that we could contribute to this whole field. We took a look at a number of the programs that exist, the nurse partnership, which you may have known about, the, the Johns Hopkins has it, there's the Harlem program, a number of these programs. And what they did essentially is to recognize 
that young mothers, especially in situations where there's not much money in poverty, who have got phenomenal pressures on them, what they can use to somebody who can help them through the prenatal period and can help them when the child is young. I mean, I had conversations with my own wife and with my daughters-in-law about the role of a mother and what it's like. And if you're under the pressures of poverty, the stresses that exist and everything else, how difficult it is, you've also got to raise a family. What we did was to say, what would happen if what we did was to create a program whereby home visitors could knock on the door and say, Sally, I'm a mother. I've been through this. You're pregnant or you're about, you've just given a help with a baby. Can I help you? We met with the experts to develop the program. But understand, it's very important. We met with the, the experts, but we also at the same time met with the communities so that effectively everything that we have done has been co-developed. This is not us. This is co-developed by the First Nations communities, by the Inuit, and by the, the First Nations that we went into. What happened was, we would say, the issue isn't, does a home visitor who has been a mother herself have to be taught how to raise a child? No, that mother knows it. The real question is, how do you teach somebody to raise a child? How do you handle that issue? We worked for a whole year at how do we put this program together? And then we went into a community, Ermiskin. It's a community that's about 45 minutes south of Edmond. It's a Cree community. We went in to Ermiskin and we sat down with the health authority and we said, we have developed this program. It's got to be further developed. Could we develop it together? And the health community said, yes, we want this program. And so we went into the community and we advertised for home visitors. The home visitors had to be women from the community who had successfully raised their children. And they were all anywhere 30, 40 to 50 years old. We then hired five women to who were going to be the home visitors. And we worked with them with this full program that had been developed by all of these experts. Huge indigenous involvement to begin with. And now this was totally from the community. And we worked with them for a long time on building the program up because what was very important to us was not that this just be an indigenous program, but that it be a Cree program from this community. And at the end of six to eight months, we were ready to go. We got a supervisor who was a nurse, spent 20 years in the community. And don't forget, we're reporting to the health authority of the community. These home visitors were taught and were trained in what to do it. And one of the really interesting things that happened, it was a wonderful thing. I wasn't there, but it's been described to me. We have this program and they meet with the potential home visitors. We teach them all that's there. And then at the end of it, we hoped this happened and it did. At the end of it, they said, now that's the program. What do you think? And the five home visitors said, well, let us sit down. And boy, did we then, then spent weeks with them as they said, this is the way we do it. This is what we understand. We put the whole thing together. And then at the end of all of that period, we'd made substantial changes. We then took this back to the experts and say, what do you think? And the experts said, it's far better than what we gave you in terms of what it was. It was superb. With that basis, the home visitors then went out and they started knocking on the door. 
far better to start with prenatal, to start when the mother is pregnant. But if the mother's already had the baby, then we do it. And the program developed and it was a huge success, a success to the point that Ermiskin, the Cree community that we went into and did it, is surrounded by three other Cree communities. All three asked if they could participate in the program. They made an application to the government, this case. So far, all of this money is our money. We developed the program, which is our process. The process is we developed the program and it's all got to be led essentially by the indigenous people. But all the risks are taken by us, not by government, until we've got the answer. And then we go to the government. They applied to the government. The government said, yes, we're now in four communities in Alberta with this course. We've got nine home visitors. We've got over 60 to 70 babies right now, mothers and babies. And it's going marvelously well. So well that we've been approached by the Yukon who have asked for the program. We've been approached by a community in Nunavut. They want it. And we've been approached by nine communities in Vancouver who also want the program and it's going to be introduced there. It is our intention to see the program grow out, always on the basis that I've just given you. I believe it's going to have a huge effect. The program will last four years. There's the prenatal years, that's zero to being born, and then the first two years, and then the last two years. The reason why these years are so important is this is when the brain is formed. This is when the brain learns to speak. This is when the brain learns understanding. This is when the brain learns resilience. It's the most important five years of anybody's life. Go back to Cindy Blackstock's statement when she said that they're compensating for a tough period. What this really says is these babies are going to be prepared for schooling, for whatever happens after that for the world. And it's showing up in the first community. And the first people to tell you are the home visitors in the communities in which we are. Mr. Martin, you talk about we. The Martin Family Initiative is very clear in its mission statement in terms of working hand in hand with Indigenous communities. A lot of the examples you've provided talk a little bit about some of those principles. What are the guiding structures that you use and how do you work very closely with Indigenous communities? And how do you work to make sure that those programs don't feel like they're outside in, but they are actually sort of of and, and from that community? Well, you put your finger on that. It has to be that way. As you can see from the early years course, all of that development took place with Indigenous experts, with the communities. It was them. There was no imposition. After we did the literacy course, we were training teachers and we were asked if we would train principals. We spoke to OISE, the Faculty of Education at the University of Toronto, and we said, we would like to develop a principals course. OISE said, great. So the first thing that we did for the principals course is we went out and we got nine Indigenous principals and we said, would you design the course as you would see it? And they designed it. Then what we did is we took it to OISE and asked OISE if they could take a look at this and see how they would work with it so that when the course went in, it was not an OISE imposed course on them. These principals said, this is what you need to be able to do. And then OISE delivered it. We got the best of both worlds. We got OISE's expertise and we got the will of these teachers. And that's what we do in every single course. The business course, 
All of the design in the business course came primarily from indigenous business people from everywhere, from how do you run a company to how do you raise money? How do you do it? How do you seek out where new businesses lie? Everything. Essentially, indigenous people have set the tone. What are the metrics you look for to know that your programs are actually having an impact? All of our programs are subject to the validated assessment tools that are available, both in teaching, but also in the early years. And these tools are throughout Canada, the United States, and in the world. People have been doing this kind of thing. They set up these tools and we use them all. And then in addition to that, we use the provincial government tools where they're available. The literacy numbers, which I gave you, those are based on Ontario government numbers. Evaluation is crucial to us. It's crucial for a number of reasons that we use all of these tools. And that is our course, let's take our early years, is constantly evolving. We're constantly learning more. The role of women is going to change. The whole question of daycare is going to change. We're constantly learning more as we go. But we can't learn more unless we're evaluating each step. And it's very important to understand that when I talk about the validated assessment tools, these are ones that have been developed by experts year in and year out for the last 20 years. But it's also important, and this is crucial, that the evaluation take place in addition to that within the context of the Indigenous people. They have their own way of looking at things. And we will not succeed unless they see the success by their standards. And by the way, their standards and the valid assessment tools more or less join together. If we're going to succeed and we're going to evolve the program, it'll only happen if the Indigenous people see it and believe it and are part of the co-development. This is not only our show. This is their show. You have, throughout your life, had working extensively with Indigenous people, whether it was on the barges or as Prime Minister or now as the leader of the foundation. What are the most important lessons you've learned over this lifetime of experience working with Indigenous people in Canada that you think others should hear? It's a continuous learning. It never stops. First, how strongly they feel about their communities and how important their communities are to them. And this is true even when they have left the community. 60% have gone, because that's where the jobs are, into the big cities. But so many of them have maintained a connection with their communities. And also that the cultural difference that they talk about is true. And it's a very powerful culture. Let me give you one example. Biodiversity, as part of climate change, is absolutely crucial. What you will find as the climate change debate continues, obviously, those people who understand biodiversity are playing a very important role. But it's written into who they are. I've had it time and time again. When I worked up in the Arctic, I would used to quote onto the tundra with indigenous people my own age. And they would see things that I never imagined. I could look right straight out of it. I couldn't see it. To give you one example, one of the things that's going to happen, we're going into the climate change debate. There's no doubt. It's, it's a massive global debate. Biodiversity, that is to say, protection of the water, protection of the land, is an essential part of it. You're not going to have clean air unless, in fact, you've got strong forests, as an example. The first 
nations and, and they maybe have created something called guardians. And this is an organization which is protecting the land, protecting water right across the country. And it's growing. And when you talk to them, you realize that what is being created is a very powerful organization of people who truly believe. And it doesn't take them very long when they're talking to you between you truly believe and you want to participate. The thing that I have really learned is that these are a powerful people with very powerful beliefs and that they make an enormous amount of sense. And to be quite honest, their beliefs in terms of biodiversity are what are needed now. They aren't yesterday's beliefs. They're the beliefs that our children are going to have to have if our planet's going to survive. So there's no doubt about we didn't behave very well over the last three, 400 years. Colonization didn't behave very well anywhere over the last 400 years. We now have an opportunity to come out of that, to come out of it to make things right, which is what I think our programs do. But also we have enormous opportunity to learn a lot of basic things that are going to be very important to the generations to come. How do you feel we're doing in terms of the state of Canada's relationship with Indigenous people in Canada today? It's a lot better than it was, but it's got a long, long way to go. But it's happening. It is happening. I think the last year and, and a lot of the revelations and a lot of it is improving the situation. But what is really important, and now I go back to the early years, we've got to ensure that the Indigenous people are able to take their place. And they're only going to be able to take their place if they get the right education. Just to give you an example, this changes all the way along. It's not going to enable them to take their place if the education that they get is the education that was given 20 years ago and we go into the digital economy. It's going to be a very different education. One of the things that we learned in the early years course and that we learned it actually in the business course is that when COVID happened, the same kind of disruption happened to the in Indigenous people as happened to everybody in downtown Toronto, but they didn't have the access to any of the computers. What we were able to do was to organize to get iPads into those communities. You think about it, home visitors who go knock on your door and say, I'd like to help you, all of a sudden couldn't go to those doors with COVID. What they had to be able to do was to operate with iPads. They didn't have the iPads. They didn't, a lot of the communities didn't have the connectivity. Now, the government's acted really fast. And I must say, I've got to give the government credit because they really have recognized it. So we got the iPads, but they're producing the connectivity. You are obviously optimistic that things are changing and that things are getting better. What are the things that you look at that makes you feel optimistic that the relationship with Indigenous people in Canada and the lives and livelihoods of Indigenous people are going to improve and we're on a positive track? I think that we are recognizing more and more that they've got to have the leadership of their own issues. We got to be there to work with them, not impose, but we have to be there to work with them. We've got the entire state who can provide this. That's what's happening now. We talked about Kelowna. The fact is that Kelowna worked. It didn't ultimately when the government changed, but it worked. And it worked because they set the agenda. And then we said, fine, it's your agenda. Now let's make it happen. That's what's happening now. In, with their issues. Our early years program is an example. They're setting the agenda, the business agenda, they're setting the agenda. I think that is just 
so important because I think it's really giving us a whole different perspective. I tell you why I also feel optimistic. The change is going to really occur in the young generations coming up. That young generation of indigenous people, that's the youngest and the fastest growing segment of our population. That's how important it is for Canadians. It's important for the indigenous people that those young men and women do well, but it's important for Canada. We're 36 million people. We got two superpowers out there, God, hundreds of millions of people. We cannot afford to waste a single body. I really do believe that as that young generation who are primarily indigenous people, as they begin to take hold, if we played our game right for the next 10 years, you're going to see a vital Canada. We should not kid ourselves. Climate change is going to have a massive effect on the world. As soon as COVID is over, climate change will become the number one priority, and it will become the number one priority to the extent that COVID is the number one priority today. And the day that that happens, the indigenous people of the world are going to play a very important role. And I really believe that an awful lot of that in the world is going to be led by Canadian indigenous people. Mr. Martin, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your passion. This topic is obviously one that's near and dear to your heart and really appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed this. I mean, it's not totally fair to you. I've done all the talking, but very, very good of you. And it's very good of the conference board. So thank you. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.